This is Natalie Moore with Spark Science. Normally, I engineer the show, but this week I went to the Lunar and Planetary Science Conference to interview planetary scientists about habitability in the solar system. LPSC is hosted near Houston, Texas, by the Johnson Space Center and the Lunar and Planetary Institute. Thanks for listening and enjoy the show. Here we go. Neutron proton mass defect, lyrical oxidation, your irrelevant mass spectrograph, your electron volt, atomic energy erupting as I get all open on betatrons, gamma rays, thermal cracking, cyclotron, any and every mic you're on, trans uranium, if you always uranium, molecules, spontaneous combustion, Bam. law of definite proportion, gain ink weight, I'm every element around. I'm going to have you say your own name, so can you just say what your name is and what kind of science you do? Chris Klein, Planetary Geochemistry. Nice. And uh, how many years have you been at LPSC also? Oh, this is probably my 10th or 11th year. Wow. That sounds a bit scary. I'm feeling (laughs) old now, but that's probably true. So I don't come every single year, but I, I... this is one of my regular conferences. Yeah. So it's, it's really nice because it's a smaller event, and so you get more personal interaction with people, mm-hmm. which is nice. Um, another really big one is called AGU. Mm-hmm. There's, I don't know, 20,000 people there. And this one probably has, I don't know, about 2,000. So it's, it's a lot different. And it's, this is nice because it's small and it's very focused in on planetary science. AGU is the... It's the American Geophysical Union, Geophys- so it has biogeochemist, uh, just normal biologists and ecologists, people who study the global climate, volcanologists. So it's, it's a, quite a grab bag of people who are interested in things that relate to geoscience. And can you just uh, summarize kind of more basically than what you did in your session, what your talk was about? Yeah, so my, my talk was a little bit off the beaten path. And in fact, it's off the beaten path from what I normally do. But essentially what my talk was looking at was some of this interesting nitrogen isotope data in Titan's atmosphere. So nitrogen has two major stable isotopes, nitrogen 14 and 15. And there's a very peculiar isotopic signature between N2, or molecular nitrogen we find in Titan's atmosphere, and HCN, which was is a chemical product of photochemistry in the atmosphere. And this has all been really well known, but what I thought that was kind of interesting was to apply this new information from Titan to thinking about the early Earth. So many people, and this started with Carl Sagan, thought that Titan could be a natural laboratory for prebiotic chemistry on an anoxic early Earth, where you could have similar types of organic synthesis. And this idea has gained a lot of ground over the past few decades, but people haven't really been thinking about the isotope consequences of the atmospheric chemistry on Titan. So I, I try to put those two things together, the, the Titan analog of the early Earth, and then some of the new isotope chemistry ideas to try to say, well, if we think Titan is a good analog of the early Earth, could we find some of this bizarre isotope chemistry in Titan's atmosphere in the geologic record of early Earth? Mm-hmm. And the real selling point to this is... Um, Maybe if we could find it, then we could discover some evidence for some of the earliest chemistry that might have happened on the early Earth. And and this could be considered, it's it's interesting, but it could also be considered a somewhat crazy idea because the, the normal conventional view is that all traces of the earliest chemistry of the Earth have been obliterated. 
So you have active geology, plate tectonics, you bury materials, you cook stuff, and we might not expect to find some of the evidence of this fragile chemistry, but the isotopes, isotopes don't get destroyed. So there, there could be hope in finding some of this information. Oh, so for, for people that don't know, uh, what are the oldest geologic units then on the Earth that we can find? The oldest rocks are about 3.8 billion years old. So these are found in Australia and in Greenland. And then, so those are the oldest rocks. We think the Earth is about 4.5 billion years old. And then some of the oldest minerals are called zircons. And these are dated as old as about 4.4 billion years. So there are some samples left from the earliest time on the Earth, but they're incredibly rare. Wow. And then the isotopes that you'd be looking at, like on Titan, they, they don't get destroyed even though... They don't get destroyed, but there, there would be challenges because the amount of material available is so limited that it's going to require the most sophisticated analytical techniques. And in fact, it may require developments and new technology before we can try to actually look for this stuff that I'm proposing. Mm -hmm. Cool. So you kept talking about HCN. Right. In I'm your obsessed talk. with that HCN. <laughs> yeah. And I don't, like I said, I'm, I'm not a chemistry major. I'm a physics major, so I don't know much about HCN or why it's an important component for life. So can you kind of describe a little bit about that? Sure. Yeah, you know, it's, it's a bit bizarre to say that HCN might be important for life because, as all of us know, if we breathe HCN, we die. But for some of the earliest chemistry that leads to the building blocks of life, there's this ver very interesting finding that HCN seems to pop up in all these reactions that can form these building blocks. So in my talk, I discuss how this building block called adenine, which is one of the key players in um, forming RNA or DNA, these genetic molecules, the syntheses that form adenine start from HCN. And so you might think that HCN is important, and it's kind of interesting also that HCN has these key elements. So it has the hydrogen, carbon, and nitrogen that you would need in these biomolecules. Mm -hmm. So you want to look for this on the Earth to see if, like, yes, it's here on Earth and we exist also. So right. there's a tie between, like, this isotope abundance or just finding that in the early materials and life. Yes, it might tell us something. We, we might have a new window into the chemistry that led to the origin of life. The okay. normal way people study the chemistry leading to the origin of life is they try to perform these experiments in the laboratory. And they, they say, well, I tried to construct some simulation in a flask or a beaker for the early earth, and here's what I get when I mix these different chemicals together. What's nice about this approach is that we could potentially send geologists out into the world, and we might be able to find observational evidence of prebiotic chemistry. And I think this is not something that we previously thought would be possible. Wow. So, where on, we already know that this exists on Titan because of Cassini. And we were, like, flying by Titan, you know, over 150 times or whatever. Where would you, like, guess to look next then? Like, what, what other systems would you guess to look for this isotope? 
And how would how would we look for that if we don't have a spacecraft already there? <laughs> right, I, I got to be careful here because I, I'm I'm not an astronomer. Oh yeah, so I don't <laughs> want to okay. misspeak here. What I would like to see is we could look for some of the these are. This is a warning. Some of these ideas are speculative. It's possible we could look for some of this evidence on the moon because some people have talked about some of the earliest crust on the Earth being blast, blasted off the surface of the Earth and landing on the moon and being preserved. So if there was, some, if there was an era of prebiotic chemistry, it may not have been preserved on the Earth, but maybe some of these rocks made it onto the moon and are still lying on the moon preserving some of this evidence. Mm -hmm. So that's one possibility. Another is Mars. So people think that Mars might have had uh, more active geology and atmospheric chemistry in its path, past, leading to some of this photochemistry and production of organic molecules. So it's possible that in some of the oldest rocks on Mars, some of this chemistry might be revealed. And then the third possibility, besides those two and Titan, is we might be able to look at exoplanets. I, I'm not really quite sure what the state of capability with the current and upcoming telescopes is, but if those telescopes can detect the heavy nitrogen isotope in HCN on exoplanets, that could tell us about this process and whether or not it is a universal feature of having atmospheric prebiotic chemistry on planets in general. But, of course, we would need to... There would need to be, like, a large area where this where this isotope occurs on those exoplanets, right, for us to... It would have to be a global phenomenon. Yeah. <laughs> and you'd also have to have great and great observational capabilities because it's already very difficult to see a trace molecule like HCN. And then now we're telling people that, oh, not only do you have to see HCN, but you have to see its minor isotope, which is over 100 times less abundant. Mm -hmm. But uh, I've learned... But from the literature and speaking with astronomers that these people who make observations are pretty clever people. So I don't want to underestimate their capabilities. Yeah. So I just like to poke them and say, well, maybe you should consider this and I'll let them get to work. Mm -hmm. Well, that's really cool. I think that would be if, if people, I hope people go out and look for that stuff and that would be a huge I, at least that would give us another line of evidence to follow for looking. Yeah, I'm hopeful. There's There's been a lot of phenomenal work in the laboratory studying prebiotic chemistry, but I, I think we, we're going to need more information if we're going to really make great progress and understand the origin of life. And I think that information needs to come from observations. So that can be geologists looking in the deep, dark record of the history of the Earth, or it could be astronomers looking at Earth-like planets elsewhere in the, the universe. Mm -hmm. So we don't actually need to go to the planets and have like a rover there or a spacecraft there, we can hopefully, I mean, you're not an astronomer, but hopefully we can come up with another way to be able to look at other planets and not actually go there and find this isotope. Uh, it's going to depend on how much detail you want and what stage of the process we're interested in. So if you want to look at some of the earliest stages, <laughs> then maybe these telescopes will be phenomenal tools. But if you want to look for some of these things like the direct building blocks of life or the first evidence of life, then we're going to need real samples. So we're going to need to analyze rocks off the surface of Mars. 
We're going to need to dig through the dunes of Titan or its lake sediments. We're going to need to probe the geological record of the early Earth. So in the ideal case, I would say let's do all of that. Yeah. So I've been asking people, because I was kind of confused when I came to this conference about what a biosignature would be, would even look like, or what people, what scientists <laughs> consider a biosignature, and I keep seeing that in all these talks, and um, people have, they can't really give me an answer because we don't really know yet, but if we found this isotope on Earth in the oldest materials, would you then say that it could be considered a biosignature? No, what's actually kind of cool about this idea is you could maybe consider it a, a prebiotic or oh. a signature at the boundary or transition between chemistry and life because it relies on some of these earliest processes where you have just simple chemical reactions happening in the environment and then leading to the building blocks of life. So it's something oh. that's complementary to thinking about finding evidence for old life. Mm -hmm. Okay, that makes sense. So uh, I just have a couple more questions. So what are you most excited for in the future of your field? I'm, I'm most excited for testing a lot of these possibilities. So testing if different environments in the solar system and outside of the solar system are habitable and in the solar system itself trying to find evidence of life. I don't know if we will be successful, <clears throat> but I, I think it's really inspiring to think that we now have a lot of the tools that we need to start testing these ideas. And so what I'm hoping for in, in the next few decades is no matter what the answer is, we can all be very proud that we gave our best answers, we gave our best efforts in trying to answer these fundamental questions. Mm -hmm. Cool. And is there anything else that you want to say that I didn't ask you about? I think that's about it. I'd just like to say if this is your first LPSC, I hope you have a great rest of the trip and rest of the week here. Thank you. I, I'm already having a great time. What, what has been your favorite part about this year's LPSC? Oh, geez, that's a tough one. I really like the, the session that I was just in on series, actually. I, I wasn't aware that there was all this great new data from the Dawn mission telling us all about the, the composition and some of the processes that have happened on series. So that's, that's really interesting. Later, I will be talking with Tom Prettyman, who was talking about the differentiation of series, and I was really confused because I was like, this is an asteroid. <laughs> I didn't realize that it would have this like internal differentiation. Yeah, you know, it, it's. I think a, a theme that you might be noticing is uh, we find lots of different objects and processes in the solar system, and it seems like for these different bodies that we're observing, they're, they're sort of like people where they have different personalities and they behave differently. So I think it's, it's really fascinating when we try to figure out their life stories. And I think Ceres is just one of the latest examples. Thomas Humphrey Prettyman, 
and I do planetary science, but I do it from the perspective of nuclear physics. So I look at uh, the radiation that comes off of planetary bodies, either through the decay of radioactive materials or bombardment of, by galactic cosmic rays, and I use that information to sort out what elements are in the surface of the planets. And then that information is used to understand how they form and evolve. Wow. And how many years have you been at LPSC? I think my first LPSC was you know, one of those last years of the 90s. I know your talk was a while ago, but could you summarize what your session was about? Uh, no, it's too long ago for me <laughs> to remember any of that. So uh, the, what I talked about today was that I tried to do an integrative analysis of the data that we have from Dawn and also telescopes to try and figure out uh, how much carbon there might be on the surface of Ceres and what form it might be in. And it's interesting that we, we have an optical spectrometer, we have um, a framing camera, we have a nuclear spectrometer, and uh, each of them has strengths. And uh, there are things that they can see, uh, they probe different depths, uh, they look at different spatial scales, and when taken separately, they can do quite a lot, but when you put them together, uh, you can do even more. So I'm trying to exploit the synergy of the different instruments on Dawn to work out the total uh, carbon budget of Ceres' surface, and um, once you determine that, uh, that can provide some clues about uh, Ceres' internal evolution. So, for our listeners who don't know about the Dawn spacecraft, mm -hmm. could you just kind of describe like when it went there and how long it's been there, and I guess what instrument you were most invested in? Well, I am the lead for Dawn's gamma ray and neutron detector, so that's my favorite instrument. Uh, although I really love the other ones too. So the Dawn spacecraft has uh, redundant framing cameras. It has a visible to infrared mapping spectrometer, VIR, and uh, it also does gravity science. So, it's, so it um, uses radio science to um, uh, sort out information about gravity, which is used to determine internal structure. And the spacecraft launched back in 2007, so we've been in space for over 10 years. Wow. And uh, we've been to Vesta and now Ceres for almost... I, I believe it's three years now, but I can't remember the uh, exact number of days. But uh, we did a, a series, um, the way in which we have investigated best in series is to approach, characterize the environment around the target, and then go to different altitudes. Um, and at each altitude, uh, you get different information and eventually you get to the low altitude mapping orbit um, where the Dawn's gamma ray neutron detector uh, makes its measurements. And so at Ceres, we, we descended to within a body radius of, of Ceres altitude. And uh, we stayed there for a while and gathered data needed to uh, sort out the elemental composition of the surface. And then we spiraled back out and we've been at a very distant orbit uh, for quite some time now. 
Uh, and that's helped us in terms of uh, the kind of information I work with. Uh, it, it helps us uh, get background data that we need to refine our elemental analyses. However, uh, we had a choice, um, we, we, two different possibilities for Dawn's extended mission. One was to descend to low altitudes to measure composition of series up close, so much closer than we've gotten before. And the other was to go to another target, which would be Adiana. And NASA selected staying in series. So we're now going to do something really exciting for my investigation, and that is we're going to get in close within 35 kilometers of the surface of Ceres in elliptical orbits. So does Dawn have any ability to land on Ceres, or is it purely orbital? It's purely orbital, and so we're not planning to land on a series. In fact, the orbit has to be designed in such a way that um, we uh, uh, are assured that if things fail, we will, won't collide with series for a long period of time. And that's for planetary protection reasons. And just as super basic information, how big is series compared to Earth, and why do we care about it? Okay, those are two good questions. The first one's the easiest answer because it's just a fact. <laughs> yes. We know how big Ceres is. Uh, we've known for a long time. We know better now that Dawn's visited Ceres. So Ceres is about a thousand kilometers in diameter. And if you took Ceres and placed it onto a map of the United States, it would be sort of scale size. Uh, the circle would be kind of scale size uh, Texas or New Mexico. Uh, Vesta is about half that diameter. And um, I think it fits rather nicely on my home state, which is New Mexico. So, um, you know, the driving distance across is about uh, how far you would have to drive if you could go through a tunnel through the center. So that's how big. Now, why is it important? Well, you can get lots and lots of different answers from people. I think it's just from today's talk. One aspect is Ceres is water rich and it's in the main belt. It, it has a story to tell us about um, the beginning of the solar system, uh, how water-rich bodies formed, how they got implanted into the main belt. And so Ceres has a lot in common with the carbonaceous chondrites. These are meteorites that have been altered by water. And Ceres has had the same thing happen to it, except on a huge scale. So you look at Ceres and you think about all the different missions that NASA might plan to do in the future. Uh, some of them involve trying to go to icy worlds um, to understand whether or not liquid water might still be present within some of them, uh, how water shaped these worlds. Well, there's Ceres sitting right there in the main belt, very accessible. And if we're right, it's got a lot of carbon, and carbon in a water-rich environment is very interesting for studies of prebiotic chemistry. So that's one reason why it might be really exciting. Uh, you could ask other people and they'll tell you other things. Um, it's just a really fascinating place. But Ceres doesn't, it doesn't have an atmosphere, so it could not actually have any life forms on it, right? Well, I don't think there's any life on Ceres. Um, your assumption that it doesn't have an atmosphere is correct. It does not have an atmosphere. Uh, it periodically appears to have an exosphere. And so water vapor is liberated by various processes. And uh, 
measurements by the instrument that I'm in charge of show that Ceres um, forms a bow shock on occasion, uh, which means that, that it's the collision of the solar wind with a transient atmosphere, call it an exosphere because it's probably collision collisionless. So you form a bow shock. Um, and my instrument detected um, energetic electrons probably produced by a bow shock at Ceres. So Ceres is an interesting place, not just for the surface chemistry, uh, but also for some of the space physics type issues. And that's actually a good segue into what I thought was interesting about your talk, is that I didn't realize that Ceres could have these kind of uh, geological processes. And I was wondering what kinds of active processes do we observe on Ceres? Right. And throughout the session, uh, there are some examples. Uh, Margaret Landis talked a little bit about the probability that you could expose um, subsurface ice um, by impacts during the duration of the dawn mission and it was very low and whatever you would expose probably would be fairly small. Uh, on the other hand there was a talk uh, by Raponi uh, and that talk discussed the exposure and varying size of water ice on a cliff edge in a crater called Juling which is a mid-latitude crater and so We've been watching this crater uh, with Dawn for a while, and it looks like the, the ice content on a cliff wall on that crater is actually increasing. And so you have processes where we know that there is subsurface ice on Ceres, and uh, you have processes where you could have a landslide and expose some of the ice. The water vapor that comes into the landslide could uh, now be exposed to sunlight, and when it's exposed to sunlight, it will sublime and produce water vapor. Mm -hmm. And so Juling Crater is one of the places you can look and, and see evidence for very recent, you know, immediate geologic activity. However, uh, in the longer time frame, 20 million years, let's say, there's Okadar Crater. And that's how old the crater is thought to be. It's thought to have formed about 20 million years ago and it contains the famous bright spots. So we don't know what those are made of yet. We know what they're made of, we just don't know exactly how they formed. We know that they're made of um, uh, sodium carbonates, possibly ammonium carbonates and salts, you know, kind of a salty mixture that somehow you know, extruded onto the surface. And so it could be cryovolcanism, so you might have warmed the material underneath and liberated it that way. Um, there could have been pre-existing brine that was liberated. There are all kinds of possibilities. We're still trying to figure it out. really surprised to learn that there were these like complex molecules on on an asteroid <laughs> I mean it's the right. largest asteroid in our solar system but still 
it, it has carbon, and you're talking about water ice. And organics. And organics. Right. So the carbon on Ceres we know is in the form of carbonates. Um, in one location around the crater Ernatet, uh, the beer spectrometer has detected evidence for uh, organic matter. And so my question in looking at the total carbon budget is, can you explain it with just the carbonates? Um, or is, do you maybe have organic molecules in the regolith everywhere? So with the meteorites, most of the carbon um, is actually in the form of organic matter, and very little of it is in the form of carbonates. And it's hard to imagine how you could convert carbon and carbonates, or carbon in the organics into, into carbonates, and just have a surface covered with carbonates, uh, given the low temperature processing that must have gone on in series. So it's puzzling that you don't see organics. You know, one of the things that might be interesting to do is to have another mission that goes back and maybe lands on the surface and scoops up some material and, and does some analysis. Because carbon, uh, carbonates and also organics, organics once they get to the surface, on um, that top surface layer, uh, they're fairly fragile and when exposed to UV and uh, ionizing particles, uh, they can degrade and uh, they you know, basically get graphitized. And there's evidence that there is graphite on the surface of Ceres. So how did how did Ceres get carbon on it? So Ceres is is interesting because again it's a lot like the carbonaceous chondrites in terms of its mineralogy. Uh, it would have formed uh, outside the orbit of Jupiter and then would have later been implanted into the main belt somehow. So okay. formed in the outer solar right. system, and yeah, and. and and you're you're outside of you know the the dew line in the solar system, so you're condensing a mixture of volatiles and silicates to make the, the body that you're going to form in this case series. And you know this what happens is that if the interior of the object is warm enough, you melt the ice that's created, and the liquid water starts to interact with the silicates, uh, particularly olivine, and you form serpentine. Well, that's um, an exogenic process. You release heat. You release this heat, and you get more melting. And you get more heat, and more melting, and more heat. And so you get a wave of this serpentine forming throughout the body. It doesn't get too terribly hot, maybe 400 C or so. And you're not going to wipe out the organics. Um, and it's not clear you know, what is exactly going to happen, but the solar system has uh, organics in, in the nebula that, that accreted along with the water, and you should preserve those, and they're light. So if you differentiated the body, and by differentiated, I mean a low temperature aqueous differentiation, not an igneous differentiation, oh, okay. then you might have had the lighter uh, organics, the lighter uh, materials um, move to the surface. So that's one of the things that we're trying to figure out. Oh, okay. And when is the Dawn mission expected to end? It is probably going to end, well, it's going to end in the autumn sometime. That's when we're basically going to run out of hydrazine. So we're just not going to be able to go any further. And, and, is that uh, that, yes. Well, 
kind of. Dawn is really an ion propulsion based system, and so it's it's got a, a big tank of xenon, and we use the xenon to um, to thrust, but uh, we're using um, hydrazine for attitude control, so to orient the spacecraft, and we have a limited hydrazine budget. We're doing our best to conserve it. That's one of the things operationally we really want to do in designing our mission. But when we go to the low altitude, we're going to start using a lot of hydrazine and it's going to be used up fairly quickly. That'll be it for the mission, you know, as far as operations are concerned. Uh, but then, of course, we have data archiving and publishing the fascinating results that we find when we go to low altitude. So. And you say you don't want any kind of contamination on Sirius, so it's not like Dawn is going to crash into Right, Sirius. the orbits are designed so that uh, the orbit will be stable for many years. Mm-hmm. The number of 50 years rings a bell, but I'm not an expert on planetary protection. So, yeah, they're going to be very careful to avoid um, striking series with the spacecraft. Cool. What are you most excited about for the future? Well, uh, I'm excited about getting this data. This will be the very first time we've been able to get with Dawn elemental data on the spatial scale of geologic units on the surface. The very first time. And so we're going to be able to look and see, I hope, what's inside a crater. And, uh, for example, you've got, uh, you know, if you look at the geologic maps, you'll see the interior has these lobate deposits. Uh, they might uh, uh, contain water that was mobilized uh, following the impact, and uh, that ice might still be there. And if it is, uh, and it's at the right depth, we probably see it with Grant. I like living in the moment, and uh, uh, this is a really fascinating time for us, and I'm really excited for what we have the potential to do with Dawn. When do you think that data will come in? It'll start coming in in June. So maybe by next year, (laughs) next year's LPSC, there might be some talks. I think there'll be, uh, yeah, information at LPSC and AGU. Awesome. Yeah. Sweet. Also, what what has been your favorite part of LPSC this this year? I really loved both Cassini general talks that I saw. Uh, it, it was just so beautiful to see the results from Cassini, and it, it's with dawn coming to an end uh, and Cassini having ended. Uh, it, it, it's uh, sad, but it's also great to see. Um, you know, how much these missions have accomplished. Yeah, I saw some sniffles at the end of that big Yeah, sure. exactly. So You can't help it with that epic music, though. <laughs> right, 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 right. <laughs> well, is there anything else that uh, you'd like to say that I didn't get a chance to ask you about? Uh, people always ask me that, and um, I can't think of anything. It's been a pleasure talking with you, and uh, if you need any more information or clarification from me, just send me an email, and I'll do my best to respond. Thanks for listening to Spark Science. If you missed any of the show, go to our website, sparksciencenow.com. If there's a science idea you're curious about, 
send us a message on Twitter or Facebook at Spark Science Now. Spark Science is produced in collaboration with KMRE Spark Radio and Western Washington University. Today's episode was recorded on location at the Woodlands Convention Center in the Woodlands, Texas. Our producer is Regina Barbara DeGraff. Our audio engineers are Natalie Moore, Andrew Norton, and Tori Hiley. Our theme music is Chemical Calisthenics by Black Alicious and Wonderland by Janelle Monet. Lead, gold, tin, iron, platinum, zinc. When I rap, you think iodine, nitrate, activate. Right, uranium, the only difference is I transmit sound. Balance with some balance, then you add a little talent in. Careful, careful with those ingredients. They can explode and blow up if you drop them and they hit the ground. <laughs>